0: And now we have our next panel with Fitch Ratings on leverage. Uh, we want to thank Fitch Ratings for being a sponsor and participant of our forum year after year.
1: Is that good? If we can ask you to take your seats, please. Is this working? All right, we're gonna get started so that way we can uh, wrap up in time for lunch. Uh, I know if everyone wants to get to that. So uh, this is the uh, Use of Leverage in Closed End Funds panel. Um, I'm Peter Gargiulo. I'm a director at Fitch Ratings. Um, you know, Fitch has been sponsoring this panel for quite a while now. Uh, I had the privilege of, of hosting it virtually last year, so it's great to be in person with everybody again. Um, you know, th- these, th- I, I always hear that these this panels look forward to. Um, I don't know how much of that is true or how much of that is hot air, but you know, we appreciate that. Um, I will say at the, the top of this that you know one of the things that we are planning on doing after this panel uh, in subsequent weeks or months, I don't know what the time frame is yet, but we will be publishing uh, this information so that is available to, to everyone who attended and the market generally. Um, so without further ado, let me
0: allow my panelists to uh, introduce themselves. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Steve Johnson. I'm an associate director at Fitch Ratings. Um, I joined in December, and since then, my focus has been closed-end funds
2: everyone. I'm Brian Knutson. I'm VP at SMBC in the Global Financial Institutions Group. Uh, so I cover closed-end funds and asset managers, and we lend about $2.7 billion in revolvers, term loans, and liquidity facilities to closed-end funds throughout the space.
1: Thanks. So um, without further ado, let's dive into the slides. Um, so, Steve, can you kind of take Describe, so you see a similar format for each slide. Uh, Steve did a lot of the work to to put these together, so uh, Steve, can you just give an overview of of what we're seeing here in this
0: slide? Yeah, sure. So um, we're looking at the average year-to-date change in net asset value by sector for a few select sectors. Uh, This data was pulled from CEF Connect, which people mentioned before. So we're looking at, it's through Q3, so through the end of uh, September 30th. And like we said before, I guess this would be the downside of leverage is when we're in a market like we are right now, uh, these funds are you know, performing quite poorly with the exception of MLPs and commodities. And I think even since in the past two weeks, since the OPEC plus oil cuts, I think even MLPs and commodities have come down a little bit. Um, but you can see, I mean, outside of commodities, uh, it's been a tough year so far. Um, I mean, the best performing industry here is down 13% year-to-date, but again, I mean, this is, we're zoomed in. We're only looking at nine months of data here, January 1st through September 30th. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's just the downside to leverage in a market like this.
1: Yeah, so I guess as a, a role of Fitch Ratings is to assign ratings to the leverage issued by closed-end funds, not the funds themselves. Um, obviously, the NAV volatility is an important aspect when we're looking at that. Um, Steve, maybe, you know, in relation to Fitch's criteria for rating closed-end fund leverage, Could you um, talk about how Fitch's criteria is positioned to to
0: evaluate uh, the leverage in this kind of market environment? Sure. So um, our criteria for closed end fund ratings is, I mean, I should start off to say it's reviewed at least annually to ensure that it maintains its ongoing relevance, especially in markets like this. Um, With that being said, I mean, one of the key parts of the criteria is a quantitative factor that we assign discount factors to each portfolio holding within each fund. And we specifically look at the asset quality and the liquidity, especially in volatile markets. So after we assign those discount factors, we look at, okay, if this fund had to sell their assets in order to, you know, meet distributions or what have you, what would they be able to get for those assets in distressed markets?
1: Yeah, and maybe the only thing to add, you know, when we talk about discount factors, you're talking about that liquidation window when the underlying securities uh, need to be sold, and what's the worst uh, price drop in those securities within that liquidation window? Um, on the heels of COVID, that this was a big lift uh, in terms of our criteria, recalibrating where we needed to uh, for the volatility we saw there in 2020. Many of our discount factors didn't move uh, relative to the price drops you saw in the global financial crisis, um, but it's something that we're we're constantly monitoring. Um, and obviously, with the, the the shortened time frame, you know, if it's a, a slow bleed that we're seeing, I think. Arguably, here with the Fed kind of incrementally in, in, increasing interest rates up, and that drop in bond bond prices or fixed income security prices, um, you're seeing that effect grad, occur gradually over time, uh, instead of a, a, in a rush like you saw during COVID or you saw a lot of that occur during the global financial crisis. So, you know, obviously, with the, the currently evolving market environment and the CPI report this morning, you know, this is this is all a backdrop that we're we're constantly making sure that we're up to date on that, but stop talking about Fitch because I'm pretty sure no one wants to hear about us. Um, <laughs> Brian, uh, what kind of closed-in fund leverage does Sumitomo participate in and uh, yeah. to which type of funds?
2: Yeah, so our uh, I mean our primary structures are revolvers and term loans. Uh, to Our portfolio is skewed more towards high yield and senior loan, but we also run preferred funds, MLP funds, as well as real asset funds. Um, in terms of that and like how we're looking at things now, I think, I mean, this has been a much more uh, orderly situation than COVID. Uh, it's been a clearer picture of what, what the outcome is and that there's going to be, you know, what the, what the issues are. So, it's been an orderly deleveraging from the funds that we lend to and really not uh, material concern for specific sectors uh, across our portfolio. Uh, obviously, we do pay attention closely to asset coverage levels um, across the entire portfolio. And all sectors, but from this point I would say no no material concerns with for, for us.
1: Got it. And I mean, maybe I understand there's no material concerns, you know, I, I definitely agree with the the, the the overall theme that you're describing. But I, I mean are there any kind of particular sectors that you're more focused on, um, given the current environment or you know, have you changed any kind of aspects to the Sumitomo lending strategy?
2: I mean, I'd say generally, uh, we really haven't changed our approach. We've gone through a couple different st- stress scenarios with COVID um, and leading into now with deleveraging and really the structures that we've seen have worked. We've targeted uh, basically top tier managers as clients that have a longer term track record of managing leverage and going through cycles, uh, and that's worked out well for us. Um, the structures themselves are structured, are aligned pretty closely with the 1940 Act. I mean, rely on, rely on a lot on their protections, and that's seemed to work throughout.
1: And I guess to step back from the 40 Act, right? You know, the kind of protections, the structural features that you see in these funds, you know, there is kind of a dichotomy. I think in our ratings coverage, um, you know, some funds actually include various aspects or structural protections that are included in Fitch's criteria, such as the discount factor framework, in those 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 uh, documentation. So they're they're actually following the criteria in real time in addition to the 40 Act. Others do not and then you know, how we view that as a rating agency is you know, some stress testing around the margins when we're maintaining or assigning ratings. Um, so I thought that would just be a good element to tie in here, but let's move on to the next slide. Um, so uh, with this slide, um, you know this is a common one. We, I don't think we included this last year, um, but I think it's really important in this current market environment um, steve can you explain what you're seeing in this
0: slide yep so uh this chart and i should say this chart and then all the <clears throat> charts going forward it's we pulled the financial data from each fund's uh sec reporting so this is for the first half of 2022 so it's pretty fresh it's january through june some funds you know report in january others report in june so there is you know some difference there but um so what we're looking at is the leverage ratios for 304 us closed end funds each blue dot represents one fund um, leverage ratio just being you know total amount of borrowing or leverage divided by the uh, total market value of their assets um, And like we mentioned before I mean closing funds they utilize leverage to boost returns But also just to boost their income That investors are looking for and like we saw in the previous slide sometimes leverage, you know, there's a downside to it um, But so in this chart, you can also see we included different uh, thresholds um, That you know some of them are regulatory I think all of these are the 1940 Act, but then there's other limits that uh, you know funds place upon themselves based on you know their investment objectives or their policies, and then also funds rated by credit credit rating agencies may impose their own limit, or the the uh, rating agencies may impose a limit based on the assigned rating.
1: Yeah, and I guess you know one of the unfortunate parts about having a PowerPoint is you can't have the side by side. You know, well, previous years I think you can really see a di- change, but Steve, maybe you could talk a little bit about you know, how does this year 2022 dispersion compare um, you know, to prior iterations of this slide?
0: Right, so we can start, we have taxable CEFs on the left and historic, I don't wanna say historically, but over the past few years, I mean, they would typically cluster right around 30%. Um, if you think of it as a bell curve this year, it's, you know, there's fatter tails. We have, we're seeing more funds down around 20%, some even close to 50%. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think you know, starting with the funds down towards lower end, that could just be funds you know lowering their leverage in light of recent market conditions. Whereas on the flip side, funds that are you know pushing up closer to 40%, I think that's you know asset values falling faster than funds are able to delever. And then muni's moving over the muni uh, on the right side. I mean, same kind of trend, not as profound, but those usually cluster around 40%, but again, I mean, you can see there's one fund that's down below 10%. There's a handful, you know, in the mid-20s, and in the past, we didn't really see that. I mean, it was really profound where it would be right around 40%. And then the same thing, there's some closer to 50. Um, I attribute that to asset values falling faster than funds are able to de Yeah, and, it, you know, I think we the theme has already been
1: talked about, but the, 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 the change in distribution patterns, obviously, that, that is a downstream effect of this. Um, And you you saw that happening over the summer, especially around the time that this data was compiled. Uh, Brian, I mean, so from your perspective, the funds you lend to, where where do they kind of fall on this? Um, Or what have you seen uh, in terms of their leverage levels?
2: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, it's been more orderly this than we saw in COVID. Um, A lot of the managers have been proactive in deleveraging throughout along the way. Um, Different managers have different tolerances and target leverage limits. Either internally or whether that's uh, specifically set by the credit agreement or by the 1940 acts that they like to adhere to when target. So basically as asset, va- asset values were falling, uh, we saw them you know, like uh, just reduce leverage gradually in order to maintain those, le- those levels.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. And I guess one, one other follow-up on the kind of the COVID aspect, right? You know, definitely not as COVID was nowhere near as orderly as this. Um, but I, I would also want to stress that there were no funds that default on their leverage, right? I mean, and, you know, especially the ones that were rated by Fitch, um, there was still the structural protections, the features that are included with this kind of leverage uh, operated as, as expected. Um, so you know, I'd make sure I want to bring that point home. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we move on to the, the next slide here. Um, so uh, I guess with this one, this is kind of a time series analysis, but Steve, maybe just talk about kind of the trends that we're seeing here and uh,
0: what this slide is showing. Yep, so uh, this slide and the next one, we're looking at specific types of leverage used by taxable funds and munis. So this one is uh, for taxable close-in funds. Um, You can see we have, you know, the total amount of leverage by each half year and the different types of leverage. Um, This one, I think we have 235 funds, 47.3 billion in outstanding leverage. Um, I mean, you can see pretty clearly there's Two categories that really dominate, and that's uh, bank debt and repo. A um, couple interesting points: I mean, you can see the steep drop off from the second half of 2019 into the onset of COVID, which, like we said, is a bit less orderly than now. Um, and then, you know, there was some recovery through 2020, 2021, um, but there was, you know, a, another small dip. So I think, looking at you know first half of 2022 versus pre-COVID. You know, second half of twenty nineteen, I think it's still down four percent total, but I mean there were signs of recovery up until recent market volatility.
1: Yeah, and I mean so maybe uh, Brian from your end, I mean, are you seeing from the closed in funds any kind of increased appetite for a certain form of leverage, you know, that they're engaging you on?
2: Yeah, it's one one interesting thing I mentioned before, we're usually just in the term loan and revolver space, especially on the taxable side. Uh, but one trend that we've seen is some taxable preferred shares being issued, and that's been done in a money market eligible format where a bank provides a letter of credit to support that. Um, typically, that's only been done on the municipal side in the VRDP structure, and uh, what we've seen a few taxable funds actually issue that and access the money market investors uh, as a source of funding. And that's been probably the most, most interesting development I've seen so far. <laughs> The leverage space
1: so yeah I mean uh, Stephen. What, what about from the, the fish perspective I mean in terms of uh, you know what's what's kind of driving that maybe you could talk about
0: yeah so new rule um, 18f-4 which addresses um, derivative use by funds specifically repos and their treatment as far as if they're leverage or derivative and different limits of places on that um, so, I mean, it went into effect in August. So again, this data is only through June. So we haven't really seen too much in the charts specifically or in financial statements, but we have seen a couple of funds over the summer that, you know, they reduced the repos and they issued new preferred shares specifically because of that new rule. So again, it's not reflected in the chart yet, but it is something that we're keeping an eye on through the end of the year. And then moving into 2023, we expect to see, um, you know, more obvious representation that in the charts. And then the, the the compatriot to that slide,
1: um, I guess, is the, the kind of the time series analysis for <clears throat> municipals. Um, so maybe you can kind of walk through some of the trends that we're seeing here, Steve.
0: Yep. So uh, similar to the last slide, this is just for munis. Um, $37.8 billion outstanding as of first half of 2022 across 108 U.S. closed-end funds. Um, for munis, we see three primary sources of leverage, which are... TOBs, uh, VRDPs, and VFMTPs. Um, now, in contrast to the taxable funds, muni leverage is actually up slightly from pre-COVID. There wasn't as much of a profound drop-off. Um, you can see there was a drop-off, but it has recovered. And we are actually sitting with more leverage now in muni closing funds as opposed to uh, prior to COVID in the second half of 2019.
1: Yeah, and I guess... Um Brian, what, what's, so SMBC, did, what, does, it, it doesn't have a spa- uh, presence in the muni space or what, what, can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? so
2: we have a uh, kind of a niche and kind of more narrow focus in the muni space and that's historically been related to VRDPs and um, just us as a, a Japanese bank, there's some nuances with the Japanese accounting on how certain structures are treated and it just impacted the feasibility of us doing it. But where we come in is we will act as a liquidity provider uh, that backstops VRDPs or any money market eligible preferred shares, and that's a business that we're looking to grow. Um, and we've, we've done that with the taxable issuances that we've, we've joined and provided liquidity support over the past few years, and would look to do so going forward.
1: Yeah, and I guess, you know, wh- one element that we kind of brought up in both of these slides, um, which is a bit new for the taxables, but were those money market eligible preferred shares? You know, I guess if you're not kind of following the money markets as closely, you know, if you're kind of, with all the market volatility going on, it's hard to be on at, top of everything, but the backdrop in money market funds is, is rapidly evolving as well. Um, you know, these, these funds have been very short uh, coming into the, the, you know, the Fed hiking to take advantage of those interest rate hikes and be positioned well to, that, to pass through to their fund yields. Um, but this other, the other kind of 800-pound gorilla in the room is money market fund reform. And one of the key things to that, um, speci- specifically for the municipal space, is the uh, you know the treatment. Some of the proposals that are being pr- uh, put forward, which has been delayed in terms of final rules coming out, um, was the inclusion of swing pricing for institutional tax-exempt funds. Um, why why does this matter? Why am I talking about it? The swing pricing, without getting into all the me- mechanics, dramatically changes the feasibility, I think, of, of money market funds in their current form. Um, if you're being charged a liquidity premium for you know to being a net on a net redemption day, um, you're basically not getting dollar in, dollar out. As a corporate treasurer or an institutional investor in those types of funds, why would you why would you expose yourself to that? How do you get your board comfortable? So one of the big buyers of these kind of preferred shares um, are money market funds. So depending upon which direction the SEC goes for Rule 2A7, Um, you could see this this landscape, an impact flow through to the close-in fund leverage and who kind of steps into the void of of buying those preferred shares. So something that, you know, at at Fitch, we're we're, we're focused on – oh, go ahead. So, yeah, these came out of COVID. Um, so one of the things that SEC put forward was swing pricing. Um, something they do in longer-term institutional bond funds in Europe. Essentially, when the, the fund strikes its nav, institutional prime, they say like three times a day that could happen. If there's net redemptions in excess of, I think it's about 4%, um, that means that there has to be a swing pricing and a market factor priced into the redeeming shares. So. There's a big administrative burden with that. Managers probably more readily able to do that with some CapEx output. There's intermediaries that would have to be involved would have to get up to speed as well. So there's a lot more CapEx that would have to go into place to implement swing pricing. But then to your point, if you have to pay, you have to dilute the redeeming share amount by the swing factor or the market risk factor to redeem those shares, you're not getting dollar in dollar out anymore. So it kind of defeats the purpose of utilizing the money market fund. Um, I mean, there's a big blowback from the industry in terms of comments. Um, a lot of pushback on it. It's, it's kind of hard to see where it shakes out. There's rumors, you know, only rumors, um, that some of the SEC chairs uh, are kind of shifting their stance. But, you know, we were expecting final rules to come out, or the proposed rules to come out this October. I think everyone's aware, or if you're not, um, there were technological issues um, with the comments. I think about 11 proposals were impacted last Friday. So they extended those comment periods by 14 days, thereby throwing the timetable of final rules coming out at least in the next month, but probably later. Um, so you know, definitely something we're, we're focused on. Um, and the reason we're focused on it, not only because of closed in fund leverage, we also rate money market funds. So, you know, But it's always interesting in drawing these connections um, to realize how this could impact this space, uh, not only just our money market fund ratings.
2: I guess just one thing I would add on the closed-end fund side, the structures that we've seen over the past few years that have been placed with money market funds, they have a lot of optionality in how they can be placed. So, if the demand from money market funds shrinks, they're able to basically put that into a different mode and then place that with a bank or a bond fund investor or kind of tailor it to whatever that investor's needs are.
1: It's so my job as a rating agency analyst to be gloomy. You're, you're making it sound optimistic. <laughs> um, no, yes, but you know, so, but you'll you'll see, you know, that those those rate changes occur, right? I mean, that, that might happen in real time. You know, and it all depends on, you know, what rule comes out if it's there, and then the implementation window is expected to be about a year, year plus, you know, maybe up to two years. It de- really depends. Um, so, anyway, big sidebar, but I think it was important to bring up. Um, oh, and I guess from, in terms of, from Fitch, in terms of municipal leverage, um, I mean, we talked about kind of the preferred shares issuance coming out. Um, is, is there anything for taxables anyway?
0: Is there anything that we're seeing in terms of muni leverage? Right. So munis, whereas taxables, we expect to see a reduction in repos for leverage and replaced with uh, preferred shares due to the 18F4 rule. For munis, we're expecting similar with, uh, you know, reduction in TOBs and those to be replaced by preferred shares. Again, in response to the new 18F-4 rule on uh, derivative use, and again, it's not reflected in the chart because it only went into effect in August, and the data is only through June, but it is something that we expect to see going forward. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, We dwelled on this pretty long, actually. So uh, the next slide. Definitely another. I think this is another slide we might not have included last time. I think it was more of a time constraint, but um, definitely interesting, important slide. The next, this slide and the next slide are important to have in this market environment.
0: Um, Steve, can you just give an overview of what we're seeing here? Yeah, so this is, uh, this one and the next one, again, broke it out. This one is for taxable close end funds and their current leverage costs. Now, this is looking at specifically January 2019 through June 2022. So, again, the more recent rate hikes aren't reflected here. And I mean, it feels like a long time ago, but back in 2019, you know, the Fed was, I think interest rates were around two, two and a half percent. And then in response to COVID, they were quickly reduced back down towards zero. And now we're kind of on the upswing again, pretty dramatically. So, you know, it's interesting data included here. So you can see the different borrowing costs. I mean, the blue bar represents, you know, the low and the high and the yellow diamond represents the average for each specific type of, Borrowing, um, and then you can see on the right side. You know, we have it broken down between like, you know, what's what's influencing those costs. You know, so you have the term of the issuance, the track record of the manager, the uh, sector and quality of the portfolio, um, whether it's secured or unsecured, the seniority in the capital structure, um, prevailing interest rates at the time. So again, in the current market, like across the board, we saw borrowing costs were going up for funds. As we look, you know, like I said, the data was pulled for funds that reported January through June. So, as we started pulling data for the funds that reported in June, you know, it was very obvious that borrowing costs were getting higher very quickly.
1: Great. And I, so, I guess, um, getting away from the Radio again, Brian, I mean, do, do you feel like this slide, you know, kind of reflects the current cost of leverage uh, in the funds that you lend to?
2: Yeah, I mean, taking a look, uh, all of our facilities on this slide would be in the bank debt on the far left. Um, and just given the, the pace of rate hikes. I mean, where the majority of our portfolio would be would be at or above the high. Uh, but I mean, most of our f- facilities are priced at a spread to term SOFR now since moving over from LIBOR and term SOFR going into the year was at five basis points. As of yesterday, it was around 330 basis points. Uh, so that alone is causing 3- 325 basis points of increased cost on these floating facilities. I guess the one, one exception that we have is we were able to offer uh, one of our borrowers a, a fixed-term loan uh, last year, which definitely has saved a lot for them, which is a, a, a win for us and a win for the client. Um, and I think one more thing to say, just in this, this environment, and this m- macro environment, I mean, risk is being repriced across the board uh, by everyone, so it, I would say it's, it's safe to say that close-in funds aren't necessarily isolated from that.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, the transition from LIBOR to far. I mean, you know, how, how did that go or going? And, you know, like, you know, how, how would you say, you know, that, that's been felt through the bank?
2: Yeah, so that's been an ongoing thing. I mean, as of the end of last year, we weren't able to originate any, any more LIBOR based loans. Uh, at the time, there was definitely some hesitation with clients to switch over and borrowers, just more of the fear of the unknown. Uh, but now, I think it's pretty much a non issue. Uh, there's more of a robust market there's uh, structures and precedent structures to that borrowers can look to uh to gain comfort
1: yeah i i guess you know i was at a, another conference yesterday and, and one of the big things i hit coming up it was more on the portfolio management side but th- this is to put things in perspective it's the first tightening cycle that we've had without libor um and what does that mean when you're investing what does that mean when you're looking at the cost of leverage you know, this is, these are all unfounded territory that I think we're all working through simultaneously and, uh, you know, just another another straw to add to the pile of straw that we're dealing with. Um, <clears throat> so the going on to the, the next slide, um, you know, this is, this is, I think, the same thing for munis, but, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a brief overview here at Steve.
0: Uh, Yeah, so same as last slide. I mean, you can see the blue bars represent high and low. Yellow diamonds represent the average. We have, you know, different leverage costs for munis here, so BRDPs, tender option bonds, um, variable and fixed muni term preferreds, MFPs, bank debts, and repos. Um, So some of these are fixed, but, you know, bank debt is going to be floating. So you can see, I mean, again, same as the taxable across the board. You know, as we were going through January through June, leverage costs were only going up and up, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, um,
1: you know, Steve, I guess in, in putting the data together, I mean, kind of going through
0: all the financials, right, so, you know, what what, what are the, the typical indices that you see here for, for these types of leverage? Right, so I would say, I mean, predominantly the SIFMA MuniSwap index, and again, that kind of replaced LIBOR, we saw a shift um, for the funds that you know had floating rate leverage, it you know all of those financial statements included a blurb about you know the transition from LIBOR to a new, to a new floating rate index, and I would say the vast majority was uh, the SIFMA money swap index.
1: Yeah. Um, you no, know, maybe maybe it's the more general question. You know, I think Brian, to you, um, you know, how do, how in in a market environment like this, you know, uh, how do you you know you price different forms of leverage? Um, you know, and kind of the challenges of doing that.
2: Yeah, I mean, as as I mentioned before, I mean, most of our pricing is, yeah. is floating, and based off of a short-term index. Um, I mean, so there's, I guess, not too much of an impact there. But in, an, in a, I mean, from any perspective of a lender, if either someone's cost of funds are going up, or if the perception of a borrower's risk is changing, then that'll ultimately get passed along to the the end borrower um so that's always potential for for change
1: yeah and you know maybe from the you know from the our perspective I think right now for Fitch's ratings the closed end fund leverage for municipals probably can get to the highest rating category uh, which would be double A um, this is falling on the heels of criteria changes post-COVID um, but from an underlying security perspective you know I, uh, we heard on the panel earlier uh, we were speaking about various municipal. Uh, sectors that are kind of underweight or under pressure uh, mass transit being one of them uh, arguably healthcare as well Um, but by and large probably the strongest credits out there would be municipals just given the the excess cash that they have post-covid from all the stimulus they received Um, a lot of that's still bouncing around in the system so you know definitely um, I think relative to maybe some of the taxable or other strategies that we've seen here um, you know that, that they're the strongest they are right now, I think they're at the peak of their credit quality cycle. But again, I'm also not a muni analyst, so don't want to get over my skis too much. <laughs> but um, maybe we move on to the, I think this slide is, is probably the, the most sought after. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, so maybe, uh, Steve, maybe you could just walk us through this one as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, again, we're looking at first half of 2022, just specifically bank financing. So. Facilities, loan facilities, uh, margin borrowing, uh, and then repos. So, um, I mean, you can see the major players just looking through those columns. I mean, BNP and State Street for bank facility and loans and margins, um, and then moving the reverse repos. Um, Again, BNP, Barclays, and uh, RBC are the main players there. And you can see we have the change since the last time we did this, which was June 2021, so uh, year over year. And I guess um, in terms of,
1: you know, ratings conversations or or requests from managers, um, you know, how have you seen these funds kind of changing their bank leverage?
0: Right. So, um, I mean, primarily shortening, you know, the agreements that they have, you know, changing from facilities to more term loans. Um, Again, just in light of the environment, I think most people are just trying to, you know, lock in shorter term interest rates, and they don't want to be locked into a floater not knowing how aggressive the Fed is going to be in continuing to hike rates, so definitely shortening the tenor um, and trying to lock in, you know, as low rate as they can in the current environment. And
1: I guess I'll have to, now everyone's seen the slide, I'll probably have to apologize to Brian. Sumitomo is not on this list, Um, but uh, can you you talk a little bit about, you know, I guess where Sumitomo would fall uh, relative to peers?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, so we, we started what well, business started in 2013. We've we've controlled it and, and grown to about $2.7 billion uh, financing to where we are today. Um, about $1 billion of that is in liquidity support uh, for various preferred shares and, and the money markets. Um, and the remainder of that $1.7 is primarily bilateral facilities with some agency facilities. Um, so, I mean, I think that puts us, should put us around six or seven uh, but there are some nuances with the uh the sec reporting as well
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah <the> fortunately <clears throat> rely on that uh, pretty heavily to do this so um i guess you know in the current market environment you know do do you see you know banks becoming i guess more or less prevalent in, in terms of closed-end fund leverage
2: i mean i think generally speaking kind of our our appetite for closed-end fund leverage hasn't declined i mean it's the facilities themselves are very attractive from a risk, risk-return basis. Uh, the short tenor, high credit quality, and high utilization uh, from the borrowers. Um, I guess that being said, there is a lot of competition for funding across different banks. I mean, there's a lot of borrowers that need funding and different groups that need funding, so there's, l- l- there is a high competition for that limited amount. Um, I guess one thing that I would add is, I guess it's going to be interesting to see where where these repo numbers go on this slide over the coming years.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess, you know, that, that the kind of FortiAC catching up to speed in terms of how they look at repo, I mean, Steve, maybe, you know, can you just talk about how, how Fitch kind of looks at repo, at least as it, as it has historically? Um, you know, I don't, there's not really kind of a big change there, but, you know, when we were assigning ratings. Do you mean in terms of,
0: you know, rule or...?
1: I meant more in terms of, you know, when we're t- calculating the asset coverage with discount factors and what we include in the
0: liability side. Right, right. So we do include repos there. You know, we're looking at how much they're borrowing, um, you know, on the short term, poor repos and what those costs are. Um, and then, you know, again, it was mentioned before, about like, you know, the structure of the leverage, like, what is the size of the repo in bank loan in relation to the amount of preferred shares that they have issued? Because, um, you know, I mean... Preferred shares, some are more fixed rate, so you have that locked in. Whereas repos, you know, it's kind of based on you know market um, rates, you know, prevailing at the time.
1: Yeah. So you know, it's definitely something that we've been. I think when historically when we've been assigning ratings, you know, we, we we consider the relative repo exposure in a closed-end fund when when looking to assign actually like the preferred shares rating or whatever we're being requested a rating in terms of fund leverage. Um, you know. One other aspect that was kind of talked about um, today, and I wanted to kind of bring it up on this panel, was kind of the democratizing of alternative investments um, in closed-end funds. What does that look like? Um, I guess the hypothetical growth of that is eventually you end up with more exposure, and then how do you put leverage on that, um, you know, to step back in terms of Fitch's experience in the sector? You know, we rate private equity collateralized fund obligations that started in closed-end funds. In our closed-end fund methodology, that's where we rated the first transaction out of. And looking at those kind of underlying assets to service an obligation with the stated coupon and ultimate maturity, amortization schedule, the whole bit, um, you know, you, we, were, we were able to do that. Now it kind of resides in its own criteria, and we see that through structured products. But there are. There are uh, examples of this democratization throughout the world. One of the things that we do rate, um, or what we call the the Astria transactions, they're out of Singapore. The most recent one that we rated um, had about a 40% LTV, debt LTV. Those are eligible to be purchased by retail investors in Singapore. So, you know, there they got the regulator comfortable that you know the structure works, and they've done about seven iterations of it. Um, So, you know, I, I don't think it's that far flung that we we eventually see that come over to the U.S. Now. Depends on what the wrapper is and what that looks like. Um, what we typically see is kind of the, the SPV true sale um, of those LP interests into the SPV to issue the debt. Um, so, I guess you know that, that concludes the, the prepared presentation. We're a little light on panelists this year. We usually have a fourth, so you know try to fill up as much time as we can. But I'm glad to take questions or you know, what, ha- what have you.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't believe so. I mean, looking at, I mean, the next chart, it showed, you know, the threshold for, you know, taxable funds Um, be somewhere, you know, sitting right on those thresholds, but none of them breached uh, as far as my knowledge.
1: Yeah, and I guess, you know, we, we, we monitor the, the overall coverage limits and the underlying assets, how they're being classified when applying the discount factors. Um, a lot of these convertible funds that we do have ratings out for, um, if they haven't delivered, they're still above their minimum asset coverage ratio in terms of our, our ratings criteria. So we ha- I don't think we've actively seen the deleveraging occur, but arguably, you'll, yes, as things continue to slide, you'll see that occur. Go ahead.
0: Yes. I have a couple of questions. On this chart, would you say that the the dots at the top are mostly uh data points closer to June? Yes. the other question is um what you monitor added arbitrations? How curious, how frequently do you do that? So I mean we do it on at least a monthly um you know, we perform surveillance for the funds that we rate. They send us their portfolio holdings um, monthly or biweekly, so every other week, so we monitor that um, on an ongoing basis.
2: For me? Um, I mean, it's whatever's stipulated by the, we, have, we are able to request on a more frequent basis, but I would say at least, at least every two weeks mm-hmm. is the vast majority.
1: And I guess one of the things I'll add is, you know, in times of severe dislocation like COVID, that those those can become ad hoc reporting requirements. If we see we're severely concerned that the steepness of the drop in underlying NAV and the ability for these funds to deliver or what their action plan is uh, might be in question, we'll have interim conversations with the manager or request more re- frequent reporting. So, you know, we, the, the COVID is a really good case study of this of so that, that steep decline and mm-hmm. uh, our subsequent more iterative uh reviewing of those asset coverage levels great
0: it was before i joined fitch but i'm pretty sure during covid like you know march april 2020 i'm pretty sure we had ongoing conversations at least daily where we were asking for updates from the portfolio managers and they were sending us their holdings and you know telling us what they were doing to be proactive about it
2: i guess from from a lender's perspective and a borrower's perspective you want to balance the reporting requirements. Because, um, I mean, if you build it in as a covenant, a lot of the time someone's certifying that, if you're getting daily asset coverage reporting that's certified, that might be a little too onerous on the fund manager and in terms of operationally. Um, but building rapport with the manager and working with them throughout, if there's times of stress, um, they're usually, I mean, they're responsive and, and we're able to request that.
1: All right. If there's no more questions, um, you're free to go to lunch. <laughs> Thank you for your attention and uh, appreciate the t- opportunity.